The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Welcome back to the Epsilon Theory Podcast. I'm Michael Correo, Director of Investor Relations and Communications at Salient. And today we're joined by Neville Crawley, not to be confused with the Crowleys of Downton Abbey. Uh, Neville is the former CEO of a company called Quid. It's a software company. And of course, I'm joined today by Dr. Ben Hunt, Salient's Chief Investment Strategist. How are you, Ben? I'm doing great, Michael. It's great to be here today, and it's really great to be here with Neville. I've been looking forward to doing a podcast with Neville for a long time. You know, as, as most longer-term Epsilon Theory uh, readers know, I've written about the changing role of technology in markets, certainly, uh, but but more than that in our in our lives. Uh, the I'll say the inability. The, um, the, the difficulty that people have in understanding how pervasive the, both the data collection and the ability to infer um, really everything <laughs> about your life, uh, the, the, the power of a uh, massively parallel uh, processing capability uh, combined with the new algorithms we've got to make sense of really large data sets how powerful that can be. And there's literally no one on this planet, I think, who is better at describing that and uh, describing uh, both what's happened, what is happening, and what's possible in the future than Neville. So, uh, Neville, thanks so much for being here. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, great to be here. Well, fantastic. So, look, Neville, I'm going to jump right into it because this is, these are subjects near and dear to, to, to my heart and I think to a lot of our listeners. You've made a distinction in some of the talks you've given, our conversations, between big data, which we've, you know, we hear about ad nauseum these days. I mean, I, I remember doing big data in my academic career. We didn't call it big data. It was just big data sets, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, yeah, right. right yeah. But, but now the big data is the buzzword today. But you've got a great, I'll say buzzword also, and it's big compute. Right. So, so, so tell our listeners the difference between big compute and big data and why you think that's where everything's going. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I think we've, like you said, we've had big data for quite a while. And it's kind of, you know, I think the, the question has been, you know, how many rows of data do you have or so on? And then how many kind of, how many fields of data and then how many data sets and a lot of the, the value is bringing that stuff together. And, you know, particularly in markets, looking at kind of a regression type approach. Yeah. You know, I kind of, in some ways, to look at that as like, how big is your stock? You know, whereas, whereas with with big compute, you're asking a bit of a different question, which is how fast is the flow? So you mm -hmm. may have way less data, but can you make way more sense of it way more quickly? And particularly for unstructured data, you know, you, you need quite a lot of data typically to do something useful. But the question is, how much computational power can you bring to it to make sense? So it's quite a different paradigm between big compute and big data. Well, well give us a sense of, 
you know, we were talking before before we went on here, some of our conversations, whether it's the computer programs that have now beat the the human champion at Go, right, which was a, a, a game more complex than chess, where people thought, well, you know, it'll be years or years before a, a computer can beat a human at, at, at Go. We recently had a, a, a computer system really beat some, some good players at, at Texas Hold'em, uh, which is another game that hasn't really lent itself well to, uh, uh, to, to, to computer approaches. And it, and it strikes me, the example I like to, to tell people about this is when I remember, again, back in grad school and the, 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 the popular notion about where technology was going or the difference between humans and computer technology was, well, computers can't recognize patterns, right? They can't recognize faces very well. Right, right, right. right? This, this right, is the right. homage. So humans will always be able to be more, you know, creative and right. to, to, to recognize patterns like, you know, like, like faces. Yeah. But, but now that's just, that's just false. And, it, and it's less a question of the, the sensors, the data collection. It's yep. more of a, a question of how the actual computing architecture is put together and what's capable there. Yeah, exactly. I think yeah, you know, I think the the kind of seminal moment in yeah, you know, what people are calling AI, but you know, which is kind of really a, a subfield of machine learning, and why mm -hmm. you use kind of big compute to not necessarily say, hey, it's a specific machine learning technique, but but nonetheless, the kind of AI renaissance. I think it became understood this was happening in in 2012. You know, when when Google famously used about 16,000 processors and about 10 million images to be able to distinguish between cats, you know? And I remember kind of talking to- I'm not, I'm not familiar with that. So, so, so what do you mean they distinguish between cats? Well, you know, you fed in lots of images. Right, and the then, pictures of cats, And then right? the machine could figure out like, you know, there's a cat in the image. And you know, my understanding is could actually figure out, oh, that's a tabby cat and that's a, you know, or whatever, an, another cat. And I remember kind of talking to Google at that time, you know, some sort of execs there. <laughs> and I'm saying like, yeah, we spent all these you know, hundreds of millions of dollars right. on this thing. And, you know, and what we got is a cat recognizer. You know, <laughs> that's either really smart or really dumb money. I mean, now you wind forward and you've got kind of, you know, this computer vision and we, you know, we're close to autonomous driving and you've got, you know, you've got DeepMind winning go. And clearly it was a very smart thing to do. But, you clearly. know, you, you got to kind of look back and say that a lot of the algorithm or algorithmic concepts existed for a long time. But you needed the big compute. You needed the power to bring them to life. But but let's let's dig into this more because whether it's recognizing tabby cats or designing the control processes for an autonomous car, the the, the real issue is this notion of pattern recognition. But it's, right. it's, I'll call it fuzzy patterns. Right. Right. So there's this this wonderful book, and I want to talk more about it as we go along. By this, uh, he's a computer science professor up at Harvard, Leslie Valiant. And it's, it's a book that changed my life, right? It's called Probably Approximately Correct, Nature's right. Algorithms. Right. And uh, this whole notion of being probably approximately correct is, is something that I, I think has come on relatively recently in the, the field of computer science, but it's been, I think, a, a, a backbone of this notion of big compute. Yeah. So help us understand that. For example, you know the, the language, the, the the words around you know hybrid neural nets and the, these these ways of I'll, I'll say picking out the catness of an image, yeah, a, a collection of pixels, right? How how does the computing processing work? Yeah. So so you you bring us on to you bring us on to kind of two things. One is the sort of like you know 
state-of-the-art machine learning, but the other is something which I'm, I'm very interested in, which is the, the which is hybrid approaches. Great. Right. So um, yeah, let's come on to onto machine learning. Um, so you know, you, you can you can basically think of machine learning as both sort of an art and a science of of designing computer algorithms that learn from data. Right. Mm -hmm. So you know, so supervised learning, you're you're exposing an algorithm to a to a training data set. You know, maybe it's cats or whatever. Yep. And it has labels, and so you're saying there's a cat in this one, there isn't. This one's a tabby. This one isn't, or whatever. And then it's kind of unsupervised machine learning where you don't have to label, and so it's kind of recognizing it for itself. And then you kind of get into into neural nets, which are this sort of this hierarchical um, processing, where there, where there are sort of these hidden layers with different weights, you know, and the weights learn over time. But, but right, it, so it's not one master learning program, right? It's it's multiple approaches or multiple cuts at the same problem. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, when you were you're talking about the um, about you know Alpha, AlphaGo and and so on, you know, and at least at least the way that I understand what they did there is they had a, they had a couple of different um, they had a couple of different approaches to it. Mm -hmm. They had a sort of a, a pre computationally intensive sort of tree of all the different possibilities coming out, but then they had um, more of a sort of intelligent you know neural net type approach to help select amongst the branches. So. Right, right, and and I think this was a big point of Valiant's book is that, is that when you, when you look at the I'll, I'll say successful evolution, of solutions in nature or or in human action, it, it it it's harder to do it. I'll call it from a godlike approach where you say, okay, right. here's the path we're going to take, and right. here you go, computer. Here's the the the, the learning set and the and the a didactic approach to say, here's the here's how you're going to solve this problem. Instead, there, there there really is a a real benefit from the the fuzziness, right? Uh, yeah. and, and the fuzziness applying both to the the actual algorithm itself, making sense of the data set, but a fuzziness in sense of how you're designing your approach to solving the problem in the first place. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, you know it, it, this also brings us on to kind of, in some ways, not taking the human out of the system. You know, when I right. when I think of hybrids. I think of you know using various machine learning techniques you know, simultaneously or you know in parallel or, or whatever, but I also think of humans in the system. You know, I, I think sometimes there's a move to say, "Yep, we need to develop this amazing hammer, and it's going to be this very specific hammer, and we're going to whack everything with it." And, and really, I think of these different techniques as tools, and you'd want a spanner and a hammer and all kinds of things. And then still, you know, humans have way more computational power than vastly more than any machine out there, particularly to act at that kind of like, you could say like master algorithm layer of selecting between the right tool at the right time and sequencing them up. The right tool at the right time, right? So, so and this is, this is something I've, I've written a lot about and well, I believe it or not, will actually tie this back into some notion of, of markets and investing. But there's, there's such a, uh, I'll call it a bias when you're thinking systematically or quantitatively about markets and investing, there's a bias towards what I call is maximization, right? We want to maximize our returns. We want to maximize our portfolio. And in fact, in life, it, it's not just a, a question of the, I'll call it the simple-minded maximization of returns, 
right? even though that's right. the, the vast majority of what you read and how people conceive of markets is to solve that problem. Right? But I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the collection of algorithms that ultimately won that Texas Hold'em tournament. Uh, this was this was recently, right? And the 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 piece that the algorithm they all played a role. These all these different algorithms to come together to form a winning approach to Texas Hold'em. But as I understand it, the dominant one, the one that had the most impact on winning the tournament, was a, a an algorithm essentially based on what they call in game theory minimax regret, mm. right? So you're not trying to maximize your return on any given hand or the like, what you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize your maximum regret. Right, right, right. <laughs> on a given hand. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's a, once you start thinking in that direction, it's a very powerful way of making sense of what is at its core often decision-making under uncertainty as opposed to decision-making under risk. Yeah, right. Right, so, so this is a concept in game theory that I also find really powerful. Decision making under risk is like it's like a game of blackjack, right? I know how many cards are in the deck. I can I can give you the odds of a card turning up. We've seen the other cards that have come up before. There's you know there's I, I can I can calculate my maximum return under a situation of of risk. That's that's decision making under risk, mm. right? Decision-making under uncertainty, though, is when we don't know what distribution of outcomes to assign to, to, to this problem or that problem, yep. much like a poker tournament, yep. much like the actual world of investing, yep. right? And these, in these decisions under uncertainty, this, these game theory toolkits, like mini-max regret, minimize your maximum regret, yep. can be really powerful to ultimately... I'll say winning the game. So one last point on this: so you've you've seen this minimax regret approach used successfully in, of all things, uh, defense planning, defense, you know, military planning, the fog of war and the like. The in, instead of trying to, to to maximize your chances of taking this objective, it can often be more effective to minimize your maximum regret from this particular engagement with an adversary. And you also see it in uh, uh, climate studies, because we, we really don't know yep. what the right model is to apply to climate change. There, there are you know, hundreds of different models, and usually the way people or their scientists approach is that you will take some collection of these models and see if there's a central tendency of the various models, but there's, there's, a, there's a wide range of possible outcomes in there, in, yep. the, in these models. So when you're dealing with technical uncertainty like that, it makes sense to apply the, a, a minimax regret. Let's not try to maximize our utility or our position 50 years down the road. That's the other problem with climate science. You do things today and you have no idea whether you're right or not, and you won't know until 50 or 100 years from now. So the decision it makes sense to, to me to make today is one of minimizing your maximum regret given all the models that you have available to yourself. And, and my view is, a lot of investors, particularly very long-term investors, family offices, pension funds, they should think of this in this the same way, that it's really a question of minimizing your maximum regret. Because let's, let's be clear, I can pick an allocation for my portfolio today, 
I'm, or I'm the you know the trustees or the, the the CIO of a pension fund. We won't know if I'm right in the decisions I've made for allocation for a decade, yep. for more. It'll, it'll, it'll outlive my tenure there, yep. right? But I've got to make those decisions today, and we have to live with them. And so that's why I really love these notions of these, as you say, the different tools, the different algorithms, and in this case, the one of minimax regret being effective both in poker playing yep. as well as, as, as investing. Yeah, and, you know, and this does bring us right back to the big compute point, the, the kinds of things that I'm particularly interested in right now are kind of optimization questions, running tons of Monte Carlo simulations. Right. Yeah, which is which gets to exactly this exact, point. Exactly this point. But but can you explain for our for our listeners or I can you know what a Monte Carlo simulation is, what what that means? Go for it. All right, okay, right. Can, so, okay. so 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 the, the whole notion of and you use that you, you see this phrase coming, you know, what's a Monte Carlo simulation? It really does come from the casino, mm-hmm. right? Which is that look, you're you're playing these games of chance. There's and to use the lingo, a stochastic component to this, to all this stuff, meaning, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men oft go awry, right? So, so you've got some probabilistic element to whatever it is you're doing, whether it's playing cards or investing in the markets. If you've got a sense of what those probabilities are, well, let's let's run a simulation of that. Let's let's run that a thousand times. Let's run it a million times. Exactly. Let's get a distribution, right? That's right. That's right. Let's see what the future might hold for us. Then look at that distribution of the future. Maybe we've got some outcomes there that we just can't tolerate. Yeah. Right? Where we want to minimize our maximum regret. Yeah. Right. Other simulations, you know, we other problems to be solved. We might have a much narrower range where we say, okay, let's pick the strategy that really maximizes our potential return. But unless you have that, that again, I'll call it simulation, that, that, that idea of what the future might hold, not just your best guess about the future, but what the range of possible outcomes are, yeah. you can't make an informed decision. Exactly, and what, you know, and I think the, you know, to the big computing is, there's a level of you know, Monte Carlo type simulation, or just just a level of simulation, which was which has been previously inconceivable to do. Right. And so, being able to run simulations in real time, all the time, across you know a billion different scenarios, is is just absolutely transformational to how we can think about uncertainty and and therefore risk. And it's 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 actually a a bigger paradigm shift than I think than I think people are appreciating. So and I keep coming back to this book, the probably approximately correct, and that was the first, uh, I'll call it, uh, illustration, the first exposure I had to what they call the P versus NP issue or problem. Right. And 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 I got to tell you, this this is an aside. How um, as, as a lot of readers of Epsilon Theory, listeners of this podcast, no, I'm a big comic book guy, right? So I, I was stunned. There's been this, this, this really great series. There's this uh, superhero, an android called, uh, well, people have seen the Avengers movies. It's The Vision, right? Now, The Vision goes way back in comic book lore, right? It's not just, uh, you know, but most people are familiar with the, with the Avengers movies. But there's been recently a, it's about a, I think it's about 15 issues that focused on the the home life of the vision and uh, his wife and kids also androids but the whole crux of the plot and it was just brilliantly written 
and I've got to find out. I'll, I'll, I'll tweet the, the 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 name of the author of this the, of this comic book series was about the vision, the Android coming up against P versus NP problems when thinking about how, you know, the, the, where the future is going and what is possible to solve and to solve for. So the, the whole issue, and I'm going to let you take a crack at P versus NP, but it, it gets this whole notion of what kind of problems can we now solve that we had no chance of conce- even conceptualizing a solution for previously. Yeah. Go for right. it. All right. So, so at the risk of someone from Caltech, you know, <laughs> right, right, coming right. Yeah. and hunting and there will. me down. There will. My, oh, you have no idea. My get, informality here. Listen, but. I get, I get letters. Trust yeah, me, yeah. I get letters, and we'll, <laughs> we'll certainly get some, some, some letters on this. However, we describe it. All right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, it's, it's obviously like a very sort of formal. It's, it's a formal kind of technical formulation of complexity theory, right? The P equals MP. But you know, more, more kind of informally, and I think kind of helpfully, a way to look at it. You know, it asks whether a problem whose whose solution can be quickly verified by a computer can also be quickly solved by a computer, right? So there's a difference right. difference That's between right. sort of proof and and solving, right? And here means here P means uh, polynomial time, which means sort of tractable, feasible, or efficient, or fast. You know, what I mean, sort of like in in real life, you can you can do it. Right, you there's know. enough time in the universe to yeah. actually solve this problem. Whereas, to, yeah. whereas NP is you know, non-deterministic polynomial time, so it's essentially sort of an intractable problem right. to solve right. fastly and Just efficiently. Just by throwing, you know, however many transistors you want to at it, we couldn't solve that problem. There, we couldn't come up with an algorithm to solve the problem with any notion of meaningful time. Yeah, and there's a, you know, there's a whole there's a sort of a whole corpus of you know, NP hard problems and whatever that we can sort of refer well, well, to. Can you, can you give us an example of, of what they, what we call an NP hard problem? Well, now, now this is getting very, very uh, risky, but- Right, um, right, right, yeah. right. But the, the, sort of things that, the sort of things that are hard problems are things like comparing, comparing graphs. Comparing networks. Right. Yep, comparing Com- graphs. Or finding paths through graphs and yep. the fast and the slowest and whatever. And it's kind of pretty intuitive, right? I, I think on one level it's quite intuitive. You've got like thousands of Nodes, millions, millions maybe. of nodes, right? right. Yeah, yeah, right. Loads, and so how? If you had a hundred different graphs, how similar are they to each other? Yep, that's really like you know, you know, or like, or like getting from one side, getting through a maze. Right. How can way, you right? prove? How do you know for sure you found the fastest path? Yeah. Well, right. You can compare sequentially. Okay, I'm going to take this path through all these millions of nodes. You got it. And then yeah. I do another path through the nodes, and oh, this one was quicker. Now I'm going to do another path. So, but once you have the solution, then you can much more quickly verify that that is right. the fastest. That's right. right. So, so in in the solution means, do I have an algorithm? Yeah. For processing this, yeah. as opposed to the brute force, I'm going to try every possible path through all of these combinations of nodes. That's what gets intractable and hard. And so the right. question is, is there an algorithm to solve this problem? Well, so. Actually, my my interest on this is sort of less on the algorithm end, although I think there are some very interesting yep. algorithmic a- approaches. Um, I'm interested in like a really thuggish kind of brute force yeah, right. approach here. Right. Right. Meaning kind of like, uh, you know, meaning at the end of the day, like, you know, I'm, I'm, partic- I'm very interested in quantum computing, as you know, you know, another yep. very controversial subject that we can ge- definitely generate hate mail from. But you know, if if the DX there's so the D wave have a new machine out the 
I think it's the DX2002 you know, qubit machine. If, if it does, if it sort of corresponds the scale up to the Google test last year of the last generation, it, it's about uh, supposedly about 100 billion times faster than the single core CPU. I'm sorry, 100 billion with a B. Right. Right. On, on so, certain narrow, narrowly defined classes of problems. But, 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 but let's ex explain to me why that's the case, because it gets to the heart of why we think we could solve different classes of problems once you get that sort of computing problem. And the, the way I'd like to, to kind of think about it is, all right, what's a transistor? A transistor is your, it's on or off. Right. Right. So, so, so a single transistor gives you two, you're either on or off. So if you put two transistors together, you've got four possible states of the world, right? right? Four possible signals that, that, that the two transistors can give you. And of course today, and this is Moore's law, we can now cram how many transistors on a, on a, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a crazy number. Yeah. But your computing power is always n squared. Right. It's always n squared. So two transistors gives you four signals, four possible you know, bits. You've, we've, we've got three transistors gives you, gives you eight. Right? So it's, so, so, so it's always... Did I get that wrong? Yes, it gives you nine, right? So it's 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 n squared. That's the that's the the transistor. The the, the quantum side though is two to the n. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So 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 for any n more than four. Yeah. So so compare for example. Five squared, which is mm -hmm, the mm -hmm, traditional mm -hmm, transistor mm -hmm, way, mm -hmm. right? So that's twenty-five. Mm -hmm. Compare that to two to the fifth, right? Thirty-two. Right. Right. And it the that. That difference, as you can imagine, gets astronomical. So imagine, you know, a thousand squared, it's a big number, it's mm -hmm. a million, mm -hmm. right? But two to the one thousandth power is a hell of a lot more than a million, right? <laughs> you know what it is. But but see, that's the power of this different approach to computing. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And you know, I think there's still a lot of sort of controversy about is it true quantum entanglement yeah yeah yeah, and it's, yeah for you know, sure and we're sure. using and it's sort of a the the approach that the d-wave uses is is a quantum annealing approach which is kind of it's about like creating this energy landscape and finding the lowest mm -hmm. you know the lowest energy state so it's not applicable to every every class of problem but but there are some problems you know, where it's perfect it's for. like but you know yeah. it's, it's like an f1 race car isn't particularly good at you know going to pick up your groceries but it doesn't matter if you're trying to yeah, drive around a circuit real fast. Okay, so so now this is the crux of it. Tell our listeners what class of problems this type of computing power is really good for. Yeah, so, You've already mentioned it. So exactly, for optimization, for Monte Carlo type simulations, and for comparing complex objects. Comparing complex objects. So this is just, you know, and this, this is why kind of bringing together some sort of markets views and some hardware views and some algorithm views and some kind of human intuition it's not i don't think this this next wave and you know i've talked about what i view as sort of the fourth wave of you know making sense of markets and the, and the world at large it, it's why it's they're all very specialized but it's when you bring them together it's when you have that hybrid solution that that, you, that i think we're going to see very very transformational things right and this is what i'm excited about because there is this there are these very large systems, call them graphs, call them networks, and it's, it's, it's language. Right. 
It's language, and 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 we're we're immersed in it, so we don't think of our language and the words we choose and we use as a graph or a network or the like. But it is. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous one, mm -hmm. right? With all mm -hmm. the words we have and our grammars and our ways of of of, of linking it, but. There's, there's, these are absolutely the type of networks that one can start to compare, and really make some, some, some insights into that just weren't possible before. When it's, it sort of brings us to a, you know, this is a slight aside, but that's dead right. And it brings us to a core thing of we refer to language as unstructured data, right? right. But that's right. But of course, it's not unstructured, or we couldn't understand each other. Exactly. It, it's just exactly. very complex in its structure. Yeah. So, so some of these approaches, I think, you know. There's, there's this sort of great tweet by, yeah, I think it was Chris Dixon, this, this Silicon Valley VC. Right. It's, it talks about sitting on the subway and someone's sitting next to him speaking in a foreign language and the, that conversation was lightly encrypted. Lightly encrypted. Oh, that's, right? a, that's, a great, that's a great phrase. Which is just, it's just so perfectly correct. You know, that it wasn't incomprehensibly unstructured. It was lightly encrypted. Well, I, you know, this is also off the, tra the track, but one of my favorite movies, certainly the last couple of years, was, was Arrival. Which was which was all about making sense of a, a truly alien language that had a different conception, you know, more than just the, the light encryption of, of, of human languages. But I found that really interesting because that, at its core, that is the issue around these networks, the network of language that we're immersed in. That in a sense, we don't even realize that we're immersed in this network and that we can make sense of yeah. it if we can apply the right processing power to solve problems we hadn't even thought we we could. Yeah, and you know, and you talked about the economic machine and the, and the narrative machine. I sort of view That's those right. as they're, they're sort of, you know, somewhat encrypted networks, which, which are which are crackable. I, I think so, and, and and I swore we'd bring this back to investing at some point. So so so. And I've written about this in the in the past, but it but it strikes me when I think about the types of languages and the the way that that language evolves, the way that that language and groups that speak one language interact with another group that speaks a different language. By the way, the best for my money, the best game theory that's happening in the world today is certainly not in the field of economics. It's either in the field of evolutionary biology, mm. right? Or it's in the field of linguistics. There's there's some tremendous game theory work going on in in, in linguistics, yeah. and it, it 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 all has to do in the, the similarity between uh, linguistics and evolutionary biology is to think of again these networks as populations, right? So so these population dynamics. How does a cluster of individuals who speak or have one grammar and are immersed in one language and system of behavior. When they come into contact with another group, what happens? What is the nature of the interaction? What's the nature of the communication? You know, these are all things that you can apply some rules and principles right. to, but we really haven't had the, again, to get back to this, the computing power to actually yeah. measure the damn thing, yeah. right? And try to put it into practice. So when I think about investing, where I get excited is that we have these two great historic tribes of investors. You've got value investors and you've got growth investors. And you know, we, we there are traders, the the, the middlemen, that's a different population, right? But I'm talking about populations of investors, the language that you speak to say, oh, I want that. I want a piece of that company or that cash flow, right? 
and the, 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 the very language that a growth investor uses to describe what he or she does is so different from the language that a value investor uses. Yep. And they talk past each other right. all the time. Right. And once you start thinking in this regard, once you start looking for it, you see these languages, you see these populations you know, wax and wane. You see how they come together and express themselves in a particular stock, right? You, you see this typically in, in large cap tech, right? Because in large cap tech, tech companies start as growth companies. Yeah, right, and so their populations coexist. And, and their population <laughs> is a growth investor. Yeah. But in the same way that, you know, there's a law of diminishing returns when you become a mega cap tech company, you're... Your, your argument for why you should, should own the company is less based on growth. I mean, Microsoft can't grow today at the rate that they grew 30 years ago, right? You just can't, right? So you get this, this transition of investor populations from growth-oriented investors to value-oriented investors. And you, and you see that in the language that's, that's used in markets where people start talking about, oh, well, Apple's got a lot of cash on hand you know they've got however many dollars of cash per share in the bank that's a value language statement that's not a growth language right. statement right the growth language statement is oh man what's what's microsoft going to announce on their you know their new developers conference or whatever, something like that right and what i'm really excited about is is, is using the new technology to, to i think for the first time make sense of these languages and these populations of investor that we've kind of known were out there, but if you're in one of those populations, you don't really feel it because it's just the it's just the the air and the the water that you swim in. Right, and you know, and and what you've you know, written on fantastically is is about this this clustering, you know, bringing bringing groups or bringing language together based on its. But it's based on its underlying similarity rather than its kind of self-declared difference. Rather than its self-declared difference. And, That's uh, the difference, right? Rather the than flow, the structure. Yeah. It's not structured data. It's unstructured data, meaning that it emerges from what it is yeah. as opposed to what some godlike entity on the outside says it is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Rather than kind of, you know, I, I guess what we say is it's sort of having this sort of dynamic topology rather than this kind of top-down um, taxonomy. Exactly, right? Which is, again, how these computer systems, and they are systems, are winning at Go and winning at poker. You know, and, I, and I think that's, that, that brings us to something kind of, kind of really interesting. Of when, when, you, when you do use that kind of more, more bottom-up topology approach, you see things which are they're neither one nor the other. You see things that are sort of, you know, if you had this cluster of value investors and this cluster of growth investors or stocks that were value or growth, you see the ones in in the middle. You see the outliers, you know, um, particularly if, you, if you're using networks, and then and that's opportunity, you know, because you know perhaps neither are understanding them properly, so they're not they're not well priced. Well, or, well, there, there's so many places to go with this because it, in one of the the challenges I have in describing both the I'll call it the power of game theory, but also the limitation of game theory is that. Game theory is very different from what you were describing earlier, that regression approach and econometric approach where you're taking historical data and saying, okay, what's the, let's, let's, there, I'm going to assume there's a pattern here, tell me the pattern, and so, so, so tell me the odds of the answer. What, what game theory is all about, and what I think is so important for human behavior, 
it's trying to understand emergent behaviors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So, so the, the notion of emergent, so go back to, you know, Adam Smith and the invisible hand, right, of, of markets. That's an emergent behavior. It's, it's, it, it's there because of the strategic interaction of populations of buyers and sellers. Right. And that's the, the sort of problem that I think we can now really not wave our hands at and think brilliantly about it like Adam Smith did, but actually start to measure and see how it impacts our real world. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's, you know, it, it's sort of, I mean, you know, spinning off into a, 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 an even further um, Good, go for on it. this. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, when I started thinking about this stuff kind of quite seriously over the past few months, I went out to, you know, chat with a bunch of quant funds. Mm-hmm. And and it was a bit, it was really ships in the night. You know, there's this real sort of like heavy anchoring on regression and questions about kind of what's the back test. And there's a certain sort of like language and approach and mindset. And, you know, with the stuff that we've been talking about, it's kind of like not the right questions and it's not the right language, you know, because... Absolutely right. Because, tra- I mean, like feeding a feeding a, um, a machine learning algorithm with data, you're, you're not really sort of backtest training it, like super optimizing it, not in the best case. You're sort of getting something up, which you think is going to perform and hopefully evolve going forwards. There's, there's a whole industry that's particularly in the hedge fund world, being that's been based on trying to identify statistical anomalies, right? right? Not not emergent behaviors, right? But statistical anomalies, yeah. and that's that's it, it is a, it is a very different just way of thinking about the problem, and 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 I think it's in large part because the stuff we've been talking about on this 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 broadcast here, these are these are new words and concepts, and I I, I I'll give you my favorite example of this, but unless until you have a word, the language to describe what you're thinking and talking about, you don't think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not part of what you would even think to consider. Yeah. So, so here's my favorite example. I wrote a really early Epsilon Theory piece about this, which was talking about the different languages of the, this linguistic approach to, to investor populations. But there's this, this famous example in, in, in literature that in all of the Homer's works, the Iliad, the Odyssey, all of uh, ancient Greece, there is no word, there is no use of the word blue, <laughs> which seems insane, right? So, so I mean, you don't, if you've ever seen, forget about visiting Greece, if you've ever seen a picture of Greece, it's all blue. The sky, the sea, it's, it's just blue. The people. Well, how can you not have a word for blue? How can you never describe the ocean as blue? You're Homer. You're this, the the master, right, Right. of telling an evocative story, and you never call the sky blue? You never call the ocean blue? How is that possible? So there were all these theories for why this is possible, why this, this, this occurred, and particularly in 17th, 18th century Europe, they're trying to figure this out. So... Homer's famous expression is the wine dark sea. So, so one of the explanations that came up was that, oh, I've got it. Ancient Greek wine must have been colored blue, <laughs> right? There must have been some copper or cyan, you know, component to the to their grapes and the way they made wine. So their wine must have been blue. That was that was one explanation. Another very popular explanation 
this is the explanation that, that Immanuel Kant favored, was that, oh, the ancient Greeks must have been colorblind. They must have been colorblind to blue, <laughs> right? And what, what, so my view, my and what the hell do I know? But, but when you look at what they did have lots of words for, they had an enormous number of words for the quality of light glinting light, gleaming light, piercing light, sparkling light, all of these different adjectives for light. And my view is they, they didn't have that word for, the, they didn't think that way in terms of hues and colors, the way that, 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 that we certainly do today. But they did see the world in a way that we don't today. Yep. Right? We really, oh, it's bright outside. Yeah, but I guess what I was But I don't have all these different words for the quality of light. And it, it, it's amazing to me how malleable human cultures are that it's not just things coming in fashion or out of fashion. It really changes the way we think and the way we perceive the world. Mm -hmm. and, and so, anyway, that's why I'm so excited that we've got some, we're starting to invent some words that combined with the computing power I think we really will be able to solve some problems that weren't even conceivable. Right, right, exactly, yeah. In the past. Yeah, that's, the, you know, I mean, my, my sort of, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure it's a very good analogy, but it's, you know, it's kind of what I got for now on, 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 on the, you know, quantum computing. Yeah. Thing, for example, it doesn't really matter what the technique is, but just massive amounts of compute. The, the differences, I look at the differences, for example, you can now travel between London, New York, and L.A., in under one minute for basically free. You know, it's like kind of potentially that big a paradigm shift. So what does that mean? You know, I mean, it means all kinds of stuff. You know, it means, you know, to, to sort of economics 101, it means that non-tradable goods like haircuts become tradable, right? So there's a whole bunch of price shifts. Yeah, there's like, <laughs> I, I love know, that. Yeah, right? That's right. But but it's kind of like a huge increase in, in, in compute coupled with what does that actually mean? Coupled with kind of the language and the concepts and whatever, you you suddenly see this kind of this huge shift. But but it's the the con it's the conceptual barrier as much as it is the technical conceptual barrier. Ba there is a conceptual barrier here, and you see it in our business of investing, right? We were talking about that yeah. before, but you see it everywhere, and it's 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 and we've we've run on here, right? So so we're going to tie this up, but you're going to have to to come back because we've got another one. Because the, the biggest conceptual barrier I see out there it's the difference between search and discovery mm -hmm. and there are two very different types of problems right so you've got google which is really good at search but the question is how do you discover right and in the way that i used to discover things you'd go to the library yep. right and i'd there was a book or something i'd be interested in so i'd go to the the shelf where that book sat and then I'd spend the next 30 minutes looking at the books around it, yeah. <laughs> right? And, and, it, it, and, and that sort of discovery process with this change in computing power, mm -hmm. with a mind open to, to discovering, I don't know where that goes, but it's, it's as negative and as down as I get about politics and economics and the human condition, <laughs> right, in this you know, policy-driven world. This is the stuff that keeps me excited, that, that, that the, the age of, of individual human advancement and discovery 
is what there I think you. we're all about, yep. is is just opening up for us. Yep. Well, Neville, I, look, we could and we would go on for for, for for hours. So so we'll come back and we'll do it again. Uh, this has been a great conversation, and uh, we will do it again. Thank, thank you, Neville. Thank you so much. Thank you, Neville. Yeah, thank you. See you guys next time. <laughs>